Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, is the Lord good or what? Man, He is so good. I'm, I've been, uh, all the time, He's good. That's right, man. And I'm, I'm uh, as I was reading through this passage, even this morning, and just kind of um, finalizing my notes, I just was reminded of just how good God is to us, man. Even, even when we respond to Him, you know, in negative ways, when, before we were even Christians, how we would reject Him, and yet how God was faithful to continue to pursue us and love us right where we were, man. And that's what we've seen in our passage this morning. If you haven't been with us, we're, we're doing a, a series called the, um, the Follow Me series, which is the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, so we're using all four Gospels. Typically, we teach a, a book of the Bible just straight through, you know, but, but right now we're doing more of a topical study on the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. So we'll, we'll be in, in John for a little while, and then we'll, we'll pick up where Jesus um, left off from John and maybe Mark or Luke or whatever. Uh, just That's kind of how we're going through the Gospels um, during this uh, series. Today we find ourselves in John chapter 8, where Jesus is in the middle of this heavy debate with these people who believed Jesus, but they didn't believe in him. They didn't have relationship with Jesus, but they believed what he was saying to a point. You've met the people. You know, they're, they're infatuated with Jesus, and yet they don't have a relationship with him. And they, they, they like what he has to say to a point until, they, until Jesus offends them. And when Jesus offends them, then they, their true colors begin to come out of them. And, and that's kind of where we find ourselves today is um, the, this conversation is escalating. We're three weeks into this conversation, so we're popping right in the middle. So if you haven't caught the other two sermons, uh, you might want to go um, check that out on our website. But um, we're going to be picking it up in John chapter 8. And beginning in verse 8, if you would stand with me, we're going to read the passage this morning, and then we're going to ask the Lord to bless our time. John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? But Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps, you, keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Are the prophets, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not, but I do, whoa, that just is crazy that Jesus would just say that straight up to them, you know. I'd be a liar just like, just like you. Um, I, I lost my place now, man. Oh, here we are. Other page. But you have not known him, I know him. But if you were to say, I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, we know that it is truth. And we ask that you would just help us to receive it as truth this morning for our, our own lives. God, that you would help us apply what is said in this passage. That you would help us to see who Jesus really is. The claims that he made, that we can trust them. And that we can hold them dear to our hearts. Because they will come true. Because his word is truth. He is the truth, and we ask that you would just speak truth into our lives this morning, and may we receive it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You can be seated. Well, claims, claims everywhere, the claims. It seems like everybody's making claims these days. However, most of the claims that are being made are empty claims. That's why we have the Federal you know, Communication uh, Commission or the Federal Trade Commission. These or these organizations are to help regulate the claims that are made to the American people. 
Listen, the devil has created a world after his own heart. It's full of deception and lies. That's why people have such a hard time believing any claims these days because the majority of the claims out there are false claims. However, just because uh, we have many false claims being made doesn't mean that, the claims are, that all claims are false. There are plenty of claims that are not false. In fact, even some of those really, really hard-to-believe claims uh, may not be false at all. They may be true. Let me give you an example. What would you say to me if I said that it rained diamonds? That it literally would rain diamonds? What would you say about that? Would you say that would be true or false? It would be true. Actually, in, in Jupiter and in... Um, where was it? Jupiter and Saturn, it does rain diamonds. I know that's 830 million miles away, but it is true, nevertheless. I bet that you would never believe that a chicken could live nearly two years without his head, but that is true. In fact, his name is Mike the Headless Chicken. In 1945, his owner went to decapitate him. He did decapitate him along with several other chickens that day. And he came out the next day, and Mike was pecking at the ground with no head. Mike was preening his feathers with no head. And so he realized, hold on a second, he's still alive. So he figured out a way to feed him. Apparently, he had, hadn't severed some, you know, the, 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 the vein or something, and the, the head came off, but he was still alive. He lived for 18 months. This guy was making, in 1945, he was at a quarter at a time, he was making $4,500 a, a month with a headless chicken. Is that crazy? He, he bought himself a combine, a couple tractors, you know, a, a new truck, all off the headless chicken named Mike. Listen, although that is hard to believe, it is absolutely true. These are the kind of claims that Jesus himself would make. Although they would be hard to understand and, and maybe outlandish to some, they were absolutely true. But you see, the federal the Federal uh, Religious Commission, the FRC, if you will, in Jerusalem wasn't buying what Jesus was saying. They're, they're putting a, a case together to indict Jesus on his claims, particularly the one claim that always stumbles everybody, the, the claim that Jesus is God. And so that's what we find ourselves in. Jesus here making some killer claims because these claims that he makes today are about to get him killed. Uh, let's refresh our memory about how this conversation began with these Jews. It was in John chapter 8, verse 31, where this conversation started, where he said, If you abide in my word, you are my true disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus started with a simple claim of freedom. He essentially said anyone who would abide in his word could be free. While the FRC didn't like what Jesus said there, they said, What do you mean free? We're already free. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. Well, Jesus, Jesus actually addressed that then and said, well, actually, you may be the physical descendants of Abraham, but you're really not the spiritual descendants. The promises aren't flowing through you because you're really not following Abraham because you have no faith. So you're really not the children of Abraham. Well, they obviously got upset about that, and then they said, well, God is our father. And Jesus said, no, no, God is not your father. Because if God were your father, then you would love me because uh, those who call him father also love the Son. The Father would put the love uh, uh, for the Son in the hearts of those whom would be His, His children. It, Jesus goes on in this dialogue to the point where He really calls them out on who their Father really is. And He says, your Father is the devil. Now, to a religious person in Jerusalem, those are fighting words. Those will get you killed there. Those will get you killed almost in any uh, country. But, you know, in, in this particular case, they got very, very upset with Jesus. And now, this is where we pick it up. Jesus has just uh, called them children of the devil, and that's kind of where we pick it up this morning. We see the format of the, these verses in, in the form of accusation, refutation, and then invitation, or a claim that Jesus makes about himself. So the Jews accuse Jesus of something, then he refutes the accusation, and then he gives an invitation and makes an incredible claim about himself. So let's begin here in verse 48 with the accusation after Jesus had just told them that they were of their father, the devil, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Uh, you can always tell when somebody's, going, somebody's losing an argument because invariably they resort to name-calling. That's the last refuge for those who can't logically refute what's being said or, or an opposing view. They begin to 
name call. And these Jews are so frustrated at Jesus at this point that they begin to call him names. They clearly understood what Jesus was saying about uh, his physical, uh, this, about their physical descendantship of Abraham and their spiritual heritage. And, and Jesus addressed both of them. And so now they're going to adjust Jesus' physical, um, physical heritage and his spiritual heritage. They address his physical heritage by calling him a Samaritan. They say, Jesus, you're a Samaritan. And now, if you were to call uh, someone a Samaritan back in this day, that would be an incredible insult because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Samaritans were half-breed Jews. They were, they were, they were uh, Jews that, were, that had, um, you know, kind of been, they've been the, whatever, intermarried with some Assyrians back in 722 B.C. when uh, the Assyrians came and overtook Jerusalem. And uh, so they were kind of considered traitors because they had fallen in, there, in line with the Assyrians. They were worshiping the gods of the Assyrians and all this kind of stuff. And so the Jews really had an issue with them. Um, Jesus didn't really care much about the fact that they had called him that, but that would have been a big deal to the people during that, during that day. They also, the, the Samaritans were considered false teachers. And so when they were calling Jesus a Samaritan here, they were not only addressing his, his physical heritage, but they were also uh, saying that he was a false teacher. Now, Jesus, rumor had it that he would have been a traitor because uh, they, they said back in this day, I've told you this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus is, the, the rumor back in the day was that Jesus' real father was a Roman soldier. And so because, you know, they, they knew that Joseph wasn't his father, yet the, the rumor of ill was that Jesus had a father and he was a Roman, and so therefore he would have been considered a, a Samaritan. But we know that not to be true. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin. He was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and she gave birth to Jesus, listen, as a virgin, now, that's, that's a claim, and that's hard to believe, but necessarily it's, it's still true, even though it's difficult to understand. Jesus obviously wasn't a false teacher either. So clearly, these, just the way that he lived his life wasn't, wasn't uh, you know, was totally contrary to what they were saying. So they attack his physical heritage. Now, they also attack his spiritual heritage, which they were saying that he was demon-possessed. Now, this would be the equivalent of saying that Jesus himself was a crazed lunatic and irrational and illogical. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had heard this, by the way. These guys had thrown this out to him before. But listen, Jesus' works clearly substantiated who his father was. If Jesus was under the control of a demon, he certainly wouldn't have been healing the sick. He certainly wouldn't have been, uh, you know, uh, restoring the lame or giving sight to the blind or giving hearing to the deaf. His actions... Listen to this. His actions speak of his spiritual heritage, and so do the Jews' actions here. They speak of their spiritual heritage. They're acting just like their father, the devil, in the way that they're treating Jesus. Now, let me ask you, what about your actions? What do your actions say about your spiritual heritage? Do they substantiate the claim that you're a Christian? Listen, we can learn a lot by looking at people. Uh, th there's fruit that comes out of people's lives. Now, although that may not be perfect, people aren't going to live perfectly. There's definitely fruit in the life of those who belong to Jesus. Those who are frauds will eventually be revealed through their own actions. Listen to Titus 1.16. It says this, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You want to know if you're really a Christian, just look at your life. It's that simple. You can look at your life. Are you truly desiring to make God famous? Or are you desiring to make yourself famous? Are you truly repentant of your sin? Again, none of this will be done perfectly. However, God is looking at our heart. You have to ask yourself the question this morning, God, what is my spiritual heritage? How does my, my life match up to my words? Am I truly living that life? Is there fruit in my life this morning? For just as James told us in James chapter 2, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Listen, works is not the way that you're saved. As I've said this many, many times, but it is the evidence that you are saved. If you have Jesus in you, how can you not do good works? Jesus does good works. That's what he does. He was mighty in word and deed. And, and if you have Jesus inside of you, then he's going to come out of you, amen? 
And you're going to live your life in such a way that people are going to know that Jesus is in there and you're going to know that Jesus is in there. All we have to do is just take a little bit of spiritual inventory of our life. What does my life look like? What are my desires? You know, am I really bent towards the Lord? Or do I just say that I have faith, but my, my life doesn't, doesn't match that? These Jews, if they would have just taken a moment to look at their lives, they would have totally seen what Jesus was saying. If they would have just taken a second and maybe just given Jesus' words a chance, they would have seen much about themselves in this moment. But they wouldn't do that. They were too proud. They were clearly the devil's children. So how does Jesus handle this? Look at verse 49. Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Uh, observe how Jesus handles this accusation. His refutation is simply full of truth. He doesn't go back and start calling names. He doesn't start insulting them. I don't know about you, but when I'm falsely accused of something, you know, the cat claws come out of me. That's my natural tendency. I want to lash out at people. I want to give them a tongue lashing at least. If not, you know, putting my right hand of fellowship upon them. You know what I mean? I mean, we do that, and you know why we do that? You know why we do that? Pride. It's pride. We'll get to that in a second. Listen, when we get our feelings hurt, when, when, when somebody says something about us, pride begins to well up in us. And you, don't you know who I am? Maybe you should ask yourself that question. Don't you know who you are? Of course I know who I am, and therefore, okay, even if it's a false accusation, I should just kind of chill because I do know who I am. But I know who he is. And he's come to redeem me and save me. And so I hide behind the shield of Jesus. Listen, the way that Jesus handles this is awesome. It's the way that we should handle these accusations, not allowing our frustration and our pride to well up into us, but to be totally human. Check this out. Jesus doesn't respond really in any, any way that would, would be out of pride at all. Check this out. He, he doesn't even respond to the Samaritan accusation. He doesn't even give that a thought. Like there are just some comments that people make towards you that you just don't even respond to. Just like, okay, whatever. Let's move on. Yeah, let's talk about this demon possession thing. And what does he say about that? He doesn't call them morons. That's probably what I would have done. But that would be a horizontal, you know, way to respond. Jesus doesn't ever respond horizontally. He responds vertically. What do I mean? He brings his father into the picture. That's how we should respond to things. It's about God. It's not about us. Listen, when somebody offends you, you bring God into the picture. You let him fight your battle because vengeance belongs to who? You? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We allow him to go before us in those situations. Jesus goes vertical with his response. He says, listen, I don't have a demon, but I have a father. I don't have a demon, but I have a father, and I honor him, and he will glorify me. There is humility in Jesus' response here as he refutes the claim to be demon-possessed. Satan is the father of pride. He's the father of pride, and therefore his children will respond in pride. That's what makes us respond that way, pride. Jesus, listen, if we want to stop being offended, you know what we have to do? Become more humble. If you have an issue and you have very thin skin and somebody says something and you get super offended, it's pride. It's because there's pride in your heart. And listen, God, God even reveals that to you because pride is not a good thing in the believer. God wants to, re to remove pride at all costs in our hearts. Pride is what caused the enemy to storm uh, the, the throne of God. And pride will, will also rout you if you're not careful. We need to seek to be humble. Not false humility, but the humility that would be willing to overlook an offense. Listen, you can't overlook an offense if you're prideful. Because you're all about yourself in those moments. But if you're humble, you can. If you respond humbly to somebody that's done something to you, you can totally overlook an offense. You can always give a gentle answer if, you're, if you respond in humility. If you have no pride, you can't get offended. That's when you become honorable to God. That's why Jesus was honorable to God, because he was just totally humble. 
He was God in the flesh, and he, he's totally humble about the way that he responds even to these guys. I'm not a, I don't have a demon. No, but I have a father, and he honors me. Listen, when we become honorable to God, there is great reward for us. Listen to what Proverbs 22.4 says. The reward for, the, for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. That sounds a lot like Matthew 6.23 to me. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you. Well, I don't know why God's not doing this in my life and why he's not doing that in my life because there's maybe too much of you involved in that statement. Maybe God says, you know, if I give you more, you're just going to become more self-centered. And so that wouldn't be a good thing for you. And since I'm about working out the good in you, I'm not going to allow you to prosper in that way because it's going to rout you. It's going to cause you to stumble and fall. It's going to create more pride in your heart. Listen, when we show God that we can handle things, God will use us in great ways. But we have to stay humble. There's always a danger when God begins to use the of a person for his honor and glory that they begin to take his honor and glory. It's very, very, that the enemy is great at deceit and he loves to tickle our ears and tell us how great we are. Listen, be careful. If God is using you today, stay humble. That's why he's using you. God calls the, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He, he, he calls those people that he can make himself famous through, not those people that will make themselves famous, you see. Be careful. Jesus responds here very, very humbly, and then he gives these guys an invitation. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, when Jesus says truly, truly, or verily, verily, maybe you have the King James Version, he says that to say what I'm about to say is absolutely true and it's of great importance. He said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What Jesus means by keeping his word is to obey it, to observe it, to perform it watchfully and vigilantly. Notice Jesus doesn't quantify this keeping. If you keep my word 90% of the time, if you keep my word 80% of the time, he doesn't give us a quantification. He just says, just do it. Do it from your heart if you would just keep my word. Of course, if your heart is bent towards God and you want to keep his word, guess what? You will. You'll keep his word. He's given you the spirit inside to empower you to do that. We have all that we need for life and godliness. God has given it all to us and we have the capacity to do that. But, but again, it's not about perfection. It's about desire. It's about hunger. It's about, you know, God, I want more of you in my life. Jesus gives this invitation to even those in this moment that are ridiculing him, calling him a Samaritan and a demon-possessed man, and he says, oh, but even if you, even if you would keep my word. Listen, it's not about any one person. You can be, you can be my enemy in one moment, and you can be my friend in the next. I love, you, I love you in the enemy moment, and I love you in the friend moment. My love doesn't change for you. Is that crazy? Is that crazy that God loves the enemy as much as he loves those who are following him? And that he's pursuing us. And even while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. That just blows my mind that God continues to pursue us in that manner. And then as we become, uh, you know, adopted into his family, that his love never changed for us. That he loved us exactly the same. Jesus says to those who are ridiculing him in this moment, even if you will keep my word, now, that's interesting that he says, my word. Because what Jesus would say is, I have everything that I say I've heard from my Father. And then what he would say is, everything that I've done is because the Father told me to do it. But then Jesus would tell these guys, if you would abide in my word. Well, see, Jesus can make those kind of statements. And this is a statement of deity, by the way. The fact that he's saying, if you would abide in my word, because he and God are one. He, he, God's word is Jesus' word. It's the same thing. Jesus is the word. And so when Jesus speaks, he is the word. And if we trust in his word, guess what? Then we know the Father because we know the Son, because they're one. Jesus says, he goes on and he gives us a claim for those who would do that. He gives us a promise here. What does he say? That we would never see death. We would never see death. Now, death is one of those things that people don't like to talk about. But it is a reality of life. And for the believer, there is no fear for us. You've heard the saying where people have said, you know, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. 
You know how that is. For the believer, Jesus gives us an incredible, incredible promise here, a comforting promise that we won't see death. Death has no sting for the Christian. Jesus removed the stinger from death when he rose again from the dead. He conquered death on our behalf. So what does Jesus mean by this then? Because we do still die, don't we? We do still die. What, what does he mean by um, we won't, does it mean that we won't die? No, he means that we won't see death. That word see means to be fixed upon, to experience or to gaze at. Listen, you and I will glance at death. We'll glance at it. We just won't see it. We won't get caught up in it as an experience. I, I like what John Corson said about this. He said, death for the believer is neither annihilation nor termination. It's transformation. It's neither annihilation or, nor termination, but it is transformation. It's where we get to change. It's where we put off this old body, and we, we are in our spiritual bodies with the Lord. And we're perfect, just like Him. When we see Him, we'll be like Him. Man, I can't wait for that day. But listen, we won't be caught up in the experience of death. We're not going to be caught up in it. There is a promise that all of us will die. That we're all appointed to death. The Bible tells us that. Unless you're raptured, then you know what? That, that's the one exclusion from that. But, but Hebrews chapter 9, 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We will die but we won't see the second death spoken of in Revelation 20 and 21. That's what he's talking about. Physical death, yes. Spiritual death, no. We won't experience that in the same way. We don't, we don't experience the second death. We simply trans, this transition from life to life. But those who don't know Jesus, they transition from death to death. That is the saddest moment in the history of man when somebody dies apart from Christ. When they, when they die apart from being in relationship with Jesus Christ, at that point, their fate is sealed. There is no other chance. They've made their choice. And now they will live with the repercussions for all of eternity in a place called hell. That is, hell is eternal separation from God. That's what hell is. To be completely separated from God. Even those who are unbelievers here today, God's presence is everywhere all the time. And God's Spirit is drawing them to Him all the time. Imagine that completely separated and not, not be existing at all in your life. As a believer, I, I can relate because I can look back in my life as an unbeliever and I can see God's presence in my life. I can see as He was drawing me to Himself. I can't imagine being completely separated from God altogether in outer darkness. But people don't want to talk about that. Because it's a sad thing. And listen, God, it's sad on God's heart. God finds it sad. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. No pleasure in the death of the wicked. Listen, Jesus, in this second death thing, it's talking about hell. And people don't want to talk about hell. They, they, they come up with all kinds of man-centered arguments about, about hell. Why would a loving God send people to hell? Well, first and foremost, that is not a true statement. A loving God does not send people to hell. A loving God saves people from hell. But a loving God will not stop a person from choosing to go to hell. Those are, you know, God doesn't send people to hell. That's where people mistake that. God is doing everything He can to save people from going to hell. That's why he sent his son. And it's a matter of pride. It's a matter of, I'm not going to do it your way, God. I'm going to do it my way. I'm good enough. And God says, no, you're not, unfortunately. I wish that were the case, but it is not. And because God is a holy and just God, he can't deny himself. He doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell. He just confirms their, their decision. People are free to choose. The penalty for sin, it tells us, is death. That is the wage. Romans 6.23. Listen, we all deserve that, but Jesus won't, Jesus 
tells us that we won't experience it. What will it be like? I imagine it to be like anesthesia. Anybody, anybody ever had a surgery in their life before? Where they were knocked out, you know, the anesthesiologist had come in and just said, just relax. I'm going to give you a little something. And before they're even out of the room, you're like... Uh, one time I was having an, an, an upper endoscopy. They were looking at my, my throat, and, uh, and the, peop, the anesthesiologist came in, and, and I had, I, this is only the second time I've ever been put to sleep, so I didn't really understand how fast that happens. And they put this thing in my mouth because they were going to go down my throat, you know? And um, the guy came in, and he gave me the shot, and I, I went to go, hey, I do. And they're like, no, 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 don't take that out because they knew immediately I was going to be out, and I was. I was just, I didn't even get my hand to the, I just remember going to kind of remove this thing to talk to them and just be, and I was out. And here's the thing. I don't remember anything that happened. I know that I was out and then I was awake. I didn't see sleep. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not going to see death. There are those that will see death, that will stay there. Their eyes will be opened in outer darkness, you see. But for the Christian, we transition. It's you go to sleep and you're in the presence of the Lord. That's what it's like. How comforting the Lord would, would be to give us that, that claim here, that we will not see death. Listen, God, death is not scary for us. We don't have to worry about that. It will do, and I believe in those moments, just like Stephen, as he was being stoned, that Jesus himself will be present in those moments with you as you transition from life to life, that God will flood his, his grace upon you in those moments. He will give you faith like you've never had in your life, and he will transition you. It will not be scary. He will be with you the entire time. So Jesus says confidently, you won't see death. You don't have to worry about that. Well, how do they respond to that? Verse 52, the Jews said, man, we know you have a demon now, Jesus. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he never tastes death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Listen, these guys come back at Jesus pretty hard. And now they say, we know without a shadow of a doubt. We weren't 100% sure before, but now we're 100% sure that you have a demon in yourself. All we had to do is give you a little rope, Jesus, and you hung yourself. Thank you very much. And listen, Jesus, Jesus they, they say Abraham died, Jesus. Abraham died. And yet you say if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Now let's stop there for a second. Is that what Jesus said? Look at that verse again. Is that what Jesus said? If anyone keeps my word that he will not taste death, is that what Jesus said? No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, they will not see death. He didn't say taste. And isn't that the way the enemy works? He just twists the words a little bit. Just twists the words of Jesus a little bit. Twists the words of God. Did God really, really say that if you eat of this tree that you will surely die? You won't surely die. You see how he does that? He just takes God's word and even one word makes a difference. The difference between tasting death and seeing death are two completely different things. To taste death is to mean to, to physically die. That's not what Jesus was talking about. That's how they understood him, but that's not what he said. When you quote Jesus, you should quote him in exactly what he said. Not change it to your own understanding. That's what people do these days. I don't like what that says, so I don't really think... Maybe Jesus is a God, not really the God. Maybe he's just a God. No, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to do that. You let his word say what it says, and you quote it as it is. You, you don't have the authorization to change anything in the Bible. You let it say what it says, even if it's tough to understand, even if it's a tough pill to swallow. We let God's word speak for itself. The devil loves to twist the words of God. Listen, the difference between tasting death, to taste death means to physically experience death. Of course we will all physically experience death. That's not what he said. He said that we won't see it. The Jews here, you know, are, are, are stumbling over what Jesus said. They don't understand it. They're saying, are you greater than Abraham, Jesus? Are you greater than Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Micah and Ezekiel? Are you better than the prophets, Jesus? They all died. Just who do you make yourself out to be? 
God or something? Is that what you're doing here, Jesus? Look at how he responds again, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Listen, Jesus refutes the idea that he's trying to make a great name for himself by reflecting upon the fact that it is his Father who glorifies him, whom they say is their God. Jesus says, no, my Father is not your God. You're not serving him as your God. The devil is your God. Understand, he's telling them, I don't seek my own glory. It's the Father who glorifies me. And man, will God glorify his Son. Listen, I believe in this moment Jesus is looking even toward the, the resurrection when God will truly glorify His Son, when His Son will be dead and then He will be alive and God will glorify Him. When Jesus, uh, all glory from heaven breaks loose in that moment when Jesus arises from the dead. Listen, the Father had already validated Jesus' ministry. He had already said, spoken audibly twice. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. At the baptism of Jesus, he did that. And at the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, he did it twice. He already confirmed Jesus. He already honored his son. But the greatest honoring would be when Jesus would rise again from the dead, conquering sin and death. That's when he would truly be glorified. Listen, they don't know God. Jesus says, you think you know God, but you don't know God. But Jesus, he knows his Father. He and his Father are one. If Jesus were to deny this moment and say, I don't know my Father, you know, the way that I don't know him, but you know him, he would be a liar like they are. That's what he said. And then Jesus goes on to say, listen, your father Abraham, he would rejoice to see my day. He would desire, and he saw it and he was glad. Now the Jews don't get that. They don't understand that statement. What do you mean, Jesus, you're only 50 years old? You're not even 50. He didn't say, you know, they, they don't really know how old Jesus is at this point in time. They just know that he's under 50. And they're just saying, man, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. How could you say that Abraham longed to see your day and that he saw it? What do you mean by that? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 tells us about Abraham and the patriarchs that they did see that by faith. It says, these all died, speaking of all the people in the hall of faith right there that they just spoken of, these all died in faith, not having received the, th the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. All of the Old Testament saints saw, that, saw Jesus through the eyes of faith. That would include Abraham. But listen, Abraham would also see Jesus with his own eyes, I believe. Many, many examples of that. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, when Jesus would stand before the king Melchizedek, whose, na whose name literally means the king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which means peace. The king of righteousness is the king of peace. There was incredible parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus. He had no beginning and no end. We knew about his beginning or end. Listen, I believe this is a pre-incarnate visit from Jesus. It's called a, a Christophany. There are many of them in the Old Testament where Jesus appears before he comes in bodily form. And Abraham saw some of these. Abraham in Genesis 17, it says that he was talking with God and that God was telling him about the promised son that he would give him beyond Ishmael. And after that conversation in Genesis chapter 17, verse 22, it says, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. God went up from Abraham believe that was Jesus incarnate. How about Genesis chapter 18? Remember, three men visited Abraham. Three were at his door of his tent. But what's interesting is after they have a conversation and, and, and um, they realize Abraham's asking him what, what they're going to do and these two guys leave and they're going to Sodom to destroy it. But one stays back. And, in, and we have a conversation in Genesis chapter 18 where it's God and Abraham talking about, and Abraham pleading for the people of Sodom. If there were just a hundred righteous, God, would you save the city? Of course I would, Abraham. If there was just 50, Lord, and he goes on this all the way down, if there's just 10, Lord, would you save it? Of course I would save it, Abraham. How about my, just my, my nephew Lot? Would, the, would you save it for him? Abraham, I'll, I'll let you rescue him. 
We'll get him out of there. We'll make sure that he, he departs from that place. But anyway, what ends up happening in Genesis chapter 18, 33, it says, And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham also, on Mount Moriah, when he had taken his son up to sacrifice him, as the Lord had declared to him to do, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him, okay? Listen to what the angel of the Lord says. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Did he withhold himself from an angel? No. The angel of the Lord, that term, when you see that in the Old Testament, it's speaking of Jesus. Joshua stood before the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord. That was Jesus himself. And he said, hey, hey Joshua, take off the sandals for the place that you're standing is holy ground. These are, these, are, these are pre-incarnate visits from Jesus. This is interesting about, Josh, about Abraham and his son Isaac, though. Because on that same mount, Mount Moriah, would be, would be the place where the temple would be built. But also at the pinnacle of Mount Moriah, would be the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And maybe it was there in that place that Abraham took his son and he built the altar, maybe even in the same place that Jesus himself would be crucified on Mount Moriah. It's an incredible parallel to what, what God was saying would happen. It was a foreshadowing of what God would do for us in sending his son. Abraham did see Jesus Christ. Abraham did understand that it, God gave him a, an everlasting covenant that he would be the father of many nations, that he would bless all of his children. Because of Jesus, Jesus would be the seed. That would be the blessing of Abraham. But it would be maybe on that same, in that same place, that same region at least. I know theologians like to debate you know, the exact location, all this stuff, but uh, Mount Moriah was probably more of a range than just one single mountain. And there was stages to it and so that was probably the case god did a lot of symbolic things in the, in the old testament where he was pointing to something in the new testament pointing to his son it all pointed to jesus the tabernacle design pointed to jesus everything in the old testament was pointing to jesus christ when he would come and the jews are like jesus you're not even 50 years old how could you say something about abraham seeing him jesus then drops the bomb on these guys he drops the bomb, verse 58. Jesus said, if that wasn't enough proof for you, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you have any question in your mind about who I make myself out to be, let me be very, very clear with you. I am. The very name of God the Father. He, he says, I am the very name of God. The one that, that would, would tell Moses to go into Egypt and to, to bring his children out of Egypt. And Moses would say, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? Am I supposed to just show up and tell the Pharaoh, hey, let, let my people go? <laughs> I need to tell them. I need to tell the people that I'm coming on behalf of somebody. Can you tell me? And he says, hey, Moses, you tell them I am who I am. You tell them that I am sent, sent you. We've already kind of talked about this a little bit earlier in the chapter uh, where Jesus had made another I am statement, I am the, the light of the world. Jesus is declaring to these people that he himself is God in the flesh, that he is God, that he existed before Abraham, that he has full rights to do whatever he desires to do because he is fully God. He has seen Abraham. He created Abraham. He was there before the foundation of the world, when the plan was being developed, Jesus saw it all. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is not a created being. He is God in the flesh. Well, like I said, people sometimes get a little violent when they hear things they don't want to hear. When, when Jesus said to himself that I am God, people didn't take too kindly to that. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus made some incredible claims here. Literally some killer claims. He claimed himself to be God. 
And in, in most parts of the world, that will definitely get you killed. And it would have gotten Jesus killed in this moment, but you know what? It wasn't his time. And that's the repetitive thing that I saw from John chapter 7, verse 35, all the way through John chapter 8. It's the repetitive theme that Jesus said, it is not yet my time. It is not yet my time. And how much peace you and I can have in the fact that we serve a sovereign God that is in control, that has a plan, and that when it's your time, it's your time. There's nobody that can rob your time from you. That God has a plan and a purpose, and He, and he knows all things. And we can rest in that. How else in the world can He say in Romans chapter 8, 28, that He works everything out for those who love Him, who called according to His purpose? How else can He say that kind of stuff if He's not in control? He's totally in control. And Jesus says, listen, it's not my time yet. And he just kind of slips into the crowd or maybe he puts his, you know, Lord of the Ring on and goes, goes, you know, a little bit, it goes whatever Frodo on him. And he just goes, you know, invisible. We don't know what it looked like, but what we do know is that Jesus escaped because it was not his time. It was not his time. Jesus made himself... Jesus made himself to be God here. Listen, the claims that Jesus makes, they require one of two responses. People are going to respond to these claims in one of two ways. The first way, prayerfully, that they will accept them as true, and that they will bow humbly and repentantly by faith, confessing him as Savior and Lord. That's one response to his claims. The other response is illustrated by the Jews here to become prideful and hard-hearted and to reject his claims altogether. And as we close this chapter, we have to ask ourselves that question. Who do we make of this man Jesus and the claims that he makes about himself? Who does Jesus make himself out to be? I think it's pretty clear who he makes himself out to be. But who do you make him be in your own life? Who are you allowing Jesus to be in your own life? A.W. Tozer on, on, regarding this passage said, you know what? Many, many Christians, although they understand the theological aspects of what Jesus is saying here, treat Jesus like the, the, um, the, the people treat the, um, the rulers in Britain, like they treat their monarch. He said the kings and the queens of Britain are called the rulers of the nation, but they do not rule. They only reign. They do not have any power. They are mere figureheads um, before people whom bow and address as your majesty. But they do not allow these monarchs to have any practical power in their lives. And that's how some people allow Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you can reign in my life. You just can't rule. That doesn't work for God. You know, that, that doesn't work for him. That's why Jesus had repetitively said in John chapter 8, you have to abide in my word. If you abide in my word, John 8, 31, then you are my disciples. If you abide in my word, you will not see death. If you obey what his word says, then you are his. It's what the word tells us. If you have a heart, but, but Jesus can't, you can't just say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life, but you have no power to tell me what to do. He's not the Lord of your life then. And as we end this chapter, that's what we have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus truly ruling? Not just reigning, but is he ruling in there? Your life will tell you that. Your life will tell you that. Let Jesus and only Jesus reign in your life. Understand, he won't settle for anything less. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning, and, and we praise you, God, for allowing us the privilege to sit at your feet this morning. We ask, Lord, that for anyone here this morning that is not in right relationship with you, God, that you would just bring them into that place even right now, Lord. You would help them to see their need for you. Lord, we are confronted with your lordship today. You are God in the flesh. You came upon this earth to die for our sake and to rise again from the dead. And we can either accept that or reject that. I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, that needs relationship with you that you, would, that you would help them to see that you're inviting them even today to step into eternal relationship with you. 
and that if they would just confess with their mouth that you are Lord, truly ruler, not the one that reigns, but the ruler of their life. And if they believe that God raised you from the dead, they'll be saved. And it's just a simple prayer. And as we continue to pray, if there's anyone here this morning that needs that relationship with God, and you're not in the right relationship with Jesus, we just ask you this morning, raise your hand, and we want to lead you in a prayer that will bring you into that right relationship with Jesus. Is there anyone here this morning that needs that relationship with Jesus Christ? Anyone at all? It's the best decision you'll ever make in your life. God came down for you, and he's asking you to just believe in what he said. Anyone at all? And Father, we thank you even for the invitations that you give us, Lord. As believers, God, for those that are here that are truly in relationship with you, God, would you help us to, to just allow our affections to grow for you, Lord? And that we would, maybe we haven't been allowing you to reign in our, to rule in our lives, Lord. We want to be obedient to your word. And so I pray for, for each one of us this morning, God, that as you speak directly into our lives about some things maybe that we're not allowing you to rule over, that we would just humbly submit ourselves to you this morning and say, Lord, I lay this down at your feet. I'm sorry that I was ruling in, that, in, that, in my job or I was ruling in this circumstance in my life and I was trying to control it, but, but now I'm releasing it to you and I'm saying you are Lord over all. And I'm asking you to just bring peace and comfort into the lives of these people this morning, Lord. And would you just fan the flame of our heart, God, and help us to live on fire for you and to glorify you and to make you known in this world as we live our lives. May our works match our lips. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.